We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Transformative Principal Podcast, where we learn how to be an amazing educational leader. I am your host, Jethro Jones. Are you ready to be a transformative principal? I'm looking for about 10 people who are ready to do what it takes to lead with integrity, find balance, and take your school to the next level. If you're looking to improve your leadership in a measurable way, go to transformativeprincipal.org slash mastermind to see if you qualify to join a group of like-minded people who are ready to be the best principals in the country. Welcome to Transformative Principal. I am so excited to have Nick Fisher on the podcast today. He is going to talk to us about what we expect in our students and how we need to have higher expectations and talks about when he became a principal, he started when corporal punishment was still allowed in Florida and how he stopped that practice in his school. Really a neat uh, interview and I am excited for you to listen to it. It's going to be great. So without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to Transformative Principal. I am really excited to have Nick Fisher on the podcast today. He is a school management consultant and a coach and has been a superintendent in Connecticut and Massachusetts and Delaware and has been in education for a long time and we're excited to have him. Nick, that was a brief introduction. Is there anything else that we need to know about you? Well, I've got... uh been married for 48 years, have two great daughters, a great wife who've been willing to be on the journey with me and uh, be very, very supportive. And um, I, I just think that working in public schools is one of the most important things you can do if you're in education. Yeah, I, I totally hear you on that. You know, the reason that we're talking today is about doing important work. And you wrote an article in uh, Education Week called Leading a District Can Be Controversial, Embrace It. And I wanted to talk about about what that looks like in reality and make sure we have a chance to talk about that. But the the real issue is that we we know that 
change is difficult and doing the right thing is difficult. And sometimes we don't realize how difficult it is until we're actually in the middle of it. So before we get there, can you talk a little bit about what it means to have courage in a leadership position in a school? Sure. I I think the difficult part is first being very clear for yourself about what's important to you, uh, really what your values are. I think that kind of, you, you see that in all different kinds of situations. And I'll give you an example or two if that would help. I started out in the state of Florida as a school principal, and I was a teacher before that in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And when I started, Florida had corporal punishment. And the interesting thing about it was that uh, it was at the principal's discretion as to who used it and how it was used, etc. I decided that I was not going to use it in my school. And frankly, many teachers were upset because they thought that it was a good solution. And my belief was that yeah. the two by four can only get so big before you, you ran out of room. And so what I really tried to do was focus on a program where I gave teachers an option, and the option had several parts to it. One was that we would tell kids what we wanted them to do as as opposed to what we didn't want them to do. Uh, For example, instead of telling kids not to run, we told them to walk. Instead of telling kids not to chew gum, we told them to leave the gum and candy at home. Instead of telling kids not to fight, we told them to keep their hands and feet to themselves. And the whole idea was to give kids and teachers and parents tools that were an alternative to what they may have been doing. I think in every case where you have values about what's important, it's not just enough to say no. What you really have to be willing to do and to talk about is how you do differently and and how you do things differently and what it looks like. And I've seen that throughout my career. People will say, okay, fine, you want me to change, but what's the difference between what I'm doing and what you want me to do? But again, the key is knowing what you believe in, knowing how to take that set of beliefs and change it into something that's reasonable to try to do for the staff and students and parents that you're working with. Yeah. When I came to my school that I was at last year, I one of the things that I took away was an in-school suspension aide whose whole job uh-huh. was to hold kids who were not being appropriate in class. And there was so much resistance when I said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to keep kids in class that, you know, people thought that the the school was falling apart and it was all my fault and there was no more discipline at all. And, you know, it's a much smaller scale than removing corporal punishment, but even something as little as that still caused a great amount of consternation for the teachers who thought that that's what that was the only way to teach kids how to be better was to make them sit out of class. And there were kids going down there for things as simple as not having a pencil in class. And it's like people pencils cost like a a penny. If that (laughs) let's, let's just make sure that everybody has a pencil. And that was tough for people to swallow. Uh What is it that when you talk about having your core beliefs and values And then having a way to implement those, how do you propose we go about that? And how do we, and the reason I'm asking that question is if my core beliefs are not 
necessarily what is what is best. How do I have the the right beliefs that are fair and appropriate for all students and not let my own personal issues get in the way? For example, I believe a lot of different things and all of those things don't always make it into what I believe as a principle. And so how do we differentiate between what is worthwhile for us to be focusing on and and worth fighting for and what is not quite as important? Does that question make sense? I understand the question. I'm not quite clear. If you could give me an example of the distinction you're talking about. There are certain times where I have a belief that there are some people who believe that, for example, people with disabilities cannot achieve at the same level. And I have a daughter with Down syndrome. That's why I'm using this example. And so some people believe, like when she was born, my grandpa said, well, are you going to put her in a home? And I was like, of course not. She's my daughter. She's, I'm going to raise her. But there are some people who believe that they should have a lower expectation or have a lower level of care or something like that, that they shouldn't be pushed as hard as, as other kids. If I believe that as a principle that certain kids just can't achieve something, whether it's disabilities, race, ethnicities, whatever, and I truly believe that in my heart, how do I not bring that in and how do I know where to draw the line on those kinds of things? Well, first of all, in my view, if you believe that, you shouldn't be a principle. Yeah. <laughs> There's a difference between believing that all kids can achieve to the same skill and knowledge levels versus all kids can believe that any child can put out a maximum effort, whatever their skills and knowledge and attitudes happen to be. And I think one of the problems in American public education, I can't speak to you know, worldwide education, but I've seen some symptoms of it elsewhere is that our expectations are too low. And I think what you've seen, just to take on your example, in the evolution of special education is a very good example of that. If you go back to the origins of special education, it wasn't as it is now. It wasn't really with the federal government. What it came from is that many, many kids were institutionalized. And in fact, what they found in the late 1960s was that many kids who had been in institutions, whether because they uh, had Down syndrome, which was then, for example, called Mongolism, or they had some other kind of disability, that they were put in institutions and in many cases never evaluated. And there was a great program in the 1960s through 60 Minutes, where a place called the Wiltwick School in New York was filmed. And what they found is that kids were living in their own feces and they were just being treated horribly. And they found adults who had never been evaluated in 30 years. They had just been put there as kids. So what you got first was what was called Chapter 766 in Massachusetts, which basically said that any child should be in the least restrictive environment possible, meaning that at some point or another, you needed to realistically expect that that youngster was going to leave school. And you had to start asking yourself the question, what kind of skills and knowledge would they have through school and when they left? So the, the next step in that was called Public Law 94-142, which was passed in 1975. 
and it was called the Education for All, the Handicapped Act. And a footnote is I find it very interesting that if you go across states, what some people call special education is now called exceptional education. And I think the notion is not just semantic. I mean, people are trying to say all of us have special needs or exceptionalities, and we shouldn't view them as negative. And the whole thrust of 94-142 was to try to get every child into the mainstream as much as possible. And then finally, what you see now in the way of IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, really starts to speak to, all right, what do you expect the child to know and be able to do by the time they leave school? And from it came the idea that the vast majority of children, probably 95% plus, who are exceptional or have special needs, should be able to reach the same skill and knowledge levels as most other students by the time they're age 21. And so what you've had is a progression of laws which have always believed that kids may need more time, but finally saying, look, no matter what the disabilities that a child has, they should be able to reach a certain skill level uh, by the time they leave that will enable them to become as functional as possible. I think part of the problem also is our own lack of experience. I think from what I know in Alaska, for example, there are real issues with Alaska natives and the sense yes. of expectations about whether Native American kids or Alaska native kids can achieve at the same level as other kids. In, you know, in the lower 48, as we say, same issues exist for poor kids, the same issues exist for visible minorities. And the whole notion is, well, because their parents didn't raise them right, they're not able to achieve. That's a bunch of baloney. Yeah. My experience is you get what you expect. If you have high expectations of kids, you're likely to get high levels of effort. And I think that's the critical issue. Every child can be expected to put out a maximum effort. I don't care what their disability is. I don't care if it's learning to how to use a spoon or learning how to take care of themselves physically or learning how to behave with other students. You get what you expect. And I think a critical issue is if you really believe that these kids can't achieve, then you really need to look at one, why you believe that, and two, have you ever tried to push kids to their maximum effort. Yeah, I think that is really powerful that you get what you expect and every child can be expected to, to put out a maximum effort. I think that's really valuable. You know, speaking specifically of Native Alaskans, what I have learned in my short time in Alaska is that they have a much different culture than than we have, and I'm speaking in generalities, but... They have a much different effort. And as I've worked with some adults who are Native Alaskans and been in a, in a different, you know, adult training situation with them, it's been fascinating to see how our education system, especially with the current strategies that we use with, you know, maximum engagement and everybody does everything and rapid fire responses, those things are not conducive to the way that they have been for generations. And so, for example, I was working with a with an adult and we were, I do masterminds for principals where we uh, work together and, and the native Alaskan principals, 
she contacted me and said, you know, it's, it's really difficult for me to communicate and talk about things because one, I don't want to be put on the spot. So if anybody asks me a question directly, that makes me really uncomfortable because that's not how we do things. Also in our family structure and in, in the village, we can, you know, sit around for two hours and not say more than 10 words and that's perfectly appropriate. And for us in in the lower 48 and even up here in the education system, we don't value people being silent and reflective and thoughtful. We need to see that they're actually learning. And so, you know, that is a a cultural thing that that we're trying to push on them that is not how they learn and interact and all that. And so that's just a very specific example of one tiny part of their culture that is is not even the whole story. And so it's easy for us to push those values on someone else that may not be appropriate for them to experience in that way. Yeah, I had similar experiences. I worked on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana, and I worked with a lot of Native American kids in Minnesota because when I was in Minneapolis, Minneapolis was the second largest urban Native American center in the United States next to Los Angeles. And there were several different things we experienced. One was that uh, we perceive paying attention as making eye contact. Right. And to many of the kids with whom I work, that was considered to be disrespectful because their elders had taught them that looking at somebody directly was offensive that you should always listen and pay attention, but no, you should not, you know, be staring at somebody else, which we view as in some cases as being engaged. I think your example about silence is a great one because in many different tribal cultures that I've been involved with over time, what I've seen is that kids are taught to listen. Kids are taught the value of listening to storytelling, of listening to experience of learning by experience, which in many cases is very different than what we expect kids to do in the way of performance in a classroom. I've seen similar issues for some people from Asian cultures, where what we expect in the way of engagement is totally contrary to what some kids are taught growing up. So I think part of what we need to look at is understanding what are the means of engagement of kids from different experiences that will enable them to succeed. Absolutely. If we are able to do that, we're going to be so much more successful with them. And that really gets to another issue that you need to be culturally aware of the kids that you are, uh, that you are teaching and uh, working with and know how they communicate and how they prefer to communicate. And that is just, incredibly important. Otherwise, you run the risk of alienating them for not a good reason. That was a great interview with Nick Fisher, and we're going to talk next week about some of the ramifications of doing the right thing and how we sometimes struggle with that. And I hope that you can learn a lot from that next week. So look forward to that. And then if you know somebody who needs some some help in this area and some encouragement, make sure you share this with them because Nick is definitely inspiring and helped me a lot in making sure I'm doing the right thing and having a good reference and frame of mind 
to be able to do that. Transformative Principle is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.